My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and today on the show, we have the Zen athlete, Matt Belair. We talked about how to become a sovereign citizen. We talked about cannabis and its role in health and wellness and being an extreme athlete. Matt had a lot of awesome, awesome anecdotes. We talked about some really impactful people he's met in his life. And we got into the whole globalism, the V question, like Santos likes to call it. So stay tuned and enjoy. If you want more content, go over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash MFTIC. Shout out to all our patrons. Go to mattbelair.com to follow up with Matt. Check out his podcast, Mastermind, Body and Spirit. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Enjoy. created corporations and what's happened is corporations have usurped the government right pretty easy to know that through money and business and stuff now the government is trying to usurp god all of these people apparently the 1611 king james bible is the contract on this planet it's all commerce it's that bible the queen swears her coronation oath on it that specific one she swears to uphold the realm so when these law experts go into law the courts and these high course and deal with stuff and they really know their shit. An average person is going to get smoked. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't try. You're going to get smoked. It takes a while to figure it out. That's what the, that's the highest contract because it's all contract law. So men and women only have to abide by the rules of God, the creator, which is don't harm all the common sense, common law. It's common sense. You, you come and drive your truck into my house. You got to fix all that stuff. Now what are you doing? You know, you got to, you harm me, you stab me, whatever. That's all stuff that's, you know, you, you are under God, but everything else is an act or a statute that goes to a banker for money. So, so in this stuff, right, it, it goes, they're all talking about the Bible and the Bible talks about the mark of the beast and then getting into this patent stuff. And so 
you can't can't patent nature, right? Not allowed to do it. They patent the seed so they can patent that seed. So this this is genetic therapy. It's gene modification. So right with yeah. this whole AI thing. So if it if it changes your DNA and they, and they have a patent on it, which they do, who owns that patent? You look at the form and it says I consent, right? And this is spiritual war warfare. So maybe this is the harvest from the Bible. Yeah, for me, it was right away from childhood. My dad was a martial artist. And so, you know, I was watching all these kung fu movies as a kid and dressing up as a ninja going out, you know. But I was really fascinated with the mind-body connection because I was watching these martial artists do things that were probably like uh, just TV at the time, you know, breaking bricks and flying through the air and doing all this kind of stuff. But at the time, I was like, oh, you know, what if this is possible and what's impossible? So as I got older, I started to see, wow, like these guys can, you know, these, uh, do these amazing uh, kicks. The Shaolin monks can break you know, iron over their heads and stuff like that. So I'm like, where is the line here between television and, you know, magic and trickery versus what people are actually doing? Because it does seem like some people are able to do this. But also from an athletic background, right, you want to get stronger, you want to get faster, you want to get better. And so I was skateboarding and snowboarding and doing hockey and things like that. So always looking for, you know, an improvement or an enhancement in performance. And I feel like martial artists are some of the pinnacle athletes on the planet. You know, the Shaolin monks for me are just incredibly impressive. You know, you, lots of athletes are impressive. But for me to be able to do some of the things that they can do is truly extraordinary. And you can't do it without the mindset connection. It's training the body. You know, the hard qigong training the body that have us kick and punch trees. There's dent holes in the academy from poking the trees with your finger. So we had to do that, right? I'm kicking a tree with my shin. You know, it's like, it seems like the stupidest thing. But there's dent holes in the trees from the years of slamming their fingers into the trees. And this is, you know, decades old tradition that they would do this. But also soft qigong of the inner work and being able to direct energy. And we'd have this um, optional class of what is it? Tai Chi or not Tai Chi, but when they see all the meridian points of the body, mm -hmm. what the heck right. is that called again? I'm sure all your audience knows that, but uh, acupuncture and all that, they had layers upon layers of points and they'd say, oh, if, well, if you have the sniffles, you put one here. If you have this issue, if you have anxiety, you put one here. And the maps that they showed us were incredibly detailed. You know, and so they've been studying the human energy system and that's working with, you know, you could say the ether, you know, lots of you know, esoteric teachers that would talk about that and and even in martial arts, they would connect with their body to the ether essentially and be able to direct energy, but they had to condition their body through discipline for it to withstand the force of whatever they were going to do. So, you know, breaking wood and then, you know, eventually breaking stone and, and really hard materials like steel <laughs> over their head and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like, you know, superhuman, but when you understand there's a methodology, a process, a practice, and a tradition behind it. You start to think, well, these people aren't unique. They're 
following something that's unique, that's making them into a better version of what it is to be human. Would you agree with that? I mean, nobody is like born without these abilities. It's more that we just choose to not take that path to improve ourselves to that high extreme degree of, you know, being able to perform the iron bending technique over your head or, you know, your arm or your belly. I mean, they, I've seen one where they like balance their whole sternum on a tip of a spear and they're like in the air held up by a spear. I mean, that's seems really like death defying at some points, but it's not, you know, extraordinary when you realize that we all have this capability. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head because I interviewed uh, Master Go, and this was one of the headmasters there, and he would actually get flown around China to do healing for political people and famous people and rich people, all that kind of stuff around uh, China. So he's very well known. And so I got a chance to interview him, and I asked him, I said, is there a trick? Because he was the one who could break stone with two fingers, bigger pieces over his head. And as I went down this rabbit hole of learning about mindset and peak performance, I learned that there were charlatans out there, you know, people in martial arts and other different fields that they would do a trick and make you think that they were doing it with their mind or some sort of special ability. So I'm asking him if, if it's a trick and he says, no, there's a translator, right? So she has to translate, ask him again. He says, no. And then the third time I ask, cause I say, I'm not going to come all the way to China, train with these guys and be fooled. You know what I mean? I'm looking at it. I'm being critical. I'm going through the training. And I see amazing stuff, but I need to be 100% sure that this is possible. And so the, the third time I ask, he just starts slamming his fingers down on the desk. And then he just said, you know, basically years. It was hard qigong for years. I think it was like 10 years of poking the trees and doing things like that. Then soft qigong meditation for years as well. So I said, are these abilities available to everyone? And he thought about it for a second and he said, yes. But most people don't have, first of all, don't have the dedication to go through this type of training. And second of all, that most of them are going to give up if they do just before they get there, right? So it's this same process over time. And that's when I realized pretty much what you said is that superhuman abilities are ordinary. It's an extraordinary or superhuman discipline for what we're capable of. And another example would be strength. You know, I never got into strength training because I was doing martial arts and snowboarding and just being an athlete. And if I go to the gym, I'd kind of blow my legs out. I didn't have a, a proper way of our understanding of training at that time. And so I started deadlifting and I found this guy, Pavel Tsatsulin from uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast. And he said, do three sets of three deadlift every second day and then just go about your sport. So I was skateboarding and I was like, okay, I could do that. And within three months, I had never deadlifted in my life. And I deadlifted 405 pounds, which is four plates aside, which for me was like, holy smokes, like that's nuts. You know, I only weighed about 170, 180 pounds. And so that was an extraordinary weight, but it was just a dedication to a very simple process. And so if we can tune into these processes that work over a duration of time, that's where we're really going to do what's considered superhuman, or even more importantly, leave a legacy in life. So the younger kids, 20, 30, 40, they want things so quick. But if you can stay the path of what's important to you, what's meaningful you and meaningful to you and have an output consistently over time, when you're 30, 40, 50, 60 now, you're going to be looking at leaving a legacy through your work and through your words and through your mastery, because that's how much time it's going to take. And it'll look easy to someone else, right? Once you've put in the years of work, it'll look like it's easy and natural, but that will be a byproduct of your process. Yeah. 
I, I wonder from this point of physical wholeness where you reach a sort of completion, right? It's extraordinary ability because of extraordinary dedication practice, but where does that overlap into the mental and spiritual realms of life? Because I, I'm sure, you know, going through the many processes you've gone through, you've definitely achieved what some would say are superhuman mental abilities, right? I mean, our email right before we got started, literally you sent an email at the exact same time I sent an email. So I had to send a second email just to make sure that you got it. Cause I'm like, we, you know, and that's the kind of little synchronicity that you can be like, well, just a coincidence, but I'm thinking, no, I thought I'm like, oh, I got to send Matt the link. And that connected us through the ether at that same point, you were like, oh, I got to make sure that this podcast is still scheduled today. And boom, I'm like, wow, 244, you know, and for you, it's a different time zone, but it happened in the same minute. And I'm like, wow. All right. So let's elaborate there. Cause I know you've traveled to places like the pyramids, you know, you've traveled with, you know, great people like monks and you know, we've had a monk on the show before off. He's trained in the Wu Dang form. So a little less rigid than Shaolin, but you know, traveling to all these mystical places, you know, let's get into that mental mystical side of things. Cause that's where I think I've focused for the past five, six years since sort of training less and less. And I want to get to a place to where I train as much as I used to, but you know, the foundation that I laid myself with martial arts training, you know, it only made this interest in esoteric and occult things much more available. So I'm sure the same is true for you. Yeah. You know, I love, I love anything that expands your consciousness or capability. So when I was in my teenage years, I was thinking about, you know, how do I improve my consciousness? And I didn't even know what that even meant. Right. And I was like, okay, well, what is like a Buddha consciousness or what is enlightenment or what would, what would the consciousness of Jesus Christ be like? you know, our psychic abilities real and natural. It, it, can I tune in? Can I do all these different things from, you know, channeling and astral projection and stuff like that? I was, I was interested in that at a very young age and it is all very mystical. But what I learned from the elders that I trained with, so I trained with uh, a Megamai elder, David Lombard, Santa Pass. I trained with a, she was a Mayan elder, Carlos Barrios. And I learned from a Zuni elder, which was Clifford Mahuti out in California. And, and for them, it was very interesting because they would have the most messed up stories you could possibly imagine that just shatter reality as you know it. You know, Carlos Barrios was talking about as a young man, you know, he's trying to do all these breath techniques or something like that. And some elder comes up and basically pokes him in his third eye and he has this DMT type of experience, you know, and he's like, huh. And then, you know, he wasn't sure about it. And then a few weeks later, he invited him where these temples were in Guatemala. And he said he just disappeared. He's like, he was walking up, he looked at me and then he's like, he disappeared and he came back and then he switched to night to day and day to night. And I'm looking at him and he looks like he's telling me the truth, right? It's still hearsay, but he doesn't seem like he's full of crap. It seems like he's, and he's been on my show uh, a couple times. And when I was at the Mayan fire ceremony in Guatemala, I did a podcast with him there where he talked a little bit about these stories. One of them was going to Egypt and you know, those whirling dervishes. He said, you know, he's, he's on a, he's a young man then. He's exploring the realms of possibility in the mystical, and he's invited into this group. He, he knows about them. So he opens the door. He said they were doing the whirling dervish thing, and they were floating there like three or four feet off the ground. And as he's telling me the story, I'm like, what? And he goes, 
that's the face that I made. <laughs> so it was interesting because they would talk about the process. They would talk about connecting to the creator and they are, and all the elders uh, always said creator. And as I'm doing this law summit now, they talk about God and the origin of words. So I think it's been put to me by Mark Patelic that the word God can be, maybe the translation isn't, isn't as clean as creator as we want it to be. So they'll use that. So I'd, I'd invite you to do your own research on that because people are very touchy on those ideas. But every elder that I spoke to used creator. They would never use the word God. So, you know, in my process, it's interesting because I think it comes back for me as, as something simple. Like when I wrote Zen Athlete, I was trying to break this stuff down so I could transfer the knowledge to a kid because all this stuff is available. It's not that complicated. We're just not taught it. And so I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to teach a kid a basketball shot and I want this to be on all schools around the world, what's most important? And what I came, came up with was before you shoot the basketball shot, take in three deep breaths because a person who can quiet their mind and a person who can't is a fundamental shift in consciousness, in the quality of your life, in freedom, in response, in everything. Most people do not know how to quiet their mind, so they're just being towed along like a guy tied to a horse to their emotions, to the responses of the day. So it's it's monumental. The second thing is to visualize the shot going in. And this teaches you that you influence your reality. So you can project what you want into the future and you can influence it. The third thing is if you miss the shot, what's the most powerful and positive perspective that you can have? So it says you, you're not always 100% correct or will 100% succeed. It's more how you respond to those to that adversity in life. It's going to make you who you are. And then finally, if you can be whole and complete and harmonious in that process and just keep repeating, that way, you know, you don't need to get to that next level. You don't need to get to the grade eight basketball team and then, you know, the high school varsity and then, you know, win the NCAA and then become LeBron James. And at, at any point, if you're not the best in the world, you are worthless. No, it's just part of the process. So that's like the very basic version. But there have been times where I've gone into a meditation and you go into like this oneness consciousness where it's like, you know, people have done DMT and ayahuasca. When they were explaining that, when that first came into my realm, I thought to myself, I've experienced that through meditation. So what is this thing that people, because it's beyond words. It's like your mother's love times a hundred billion. You can't, you can't define it. It's like, a goldfish becoming conscious and, and being human. And, and this goldfish doesn't even know that land exists because he's in the ocean or something somewhere. And you show him everything and you speak English and you can, he can understand you and you explain computers and cars and all that kind of stuff. Then he goes back to being a goldfish and he has to explain it to his friends, but there's no language for it. That's kind of what it's like. So, but it's a direct experience and it's incredibly powerful. So I, I like the, I think the importance of the practical when we dive into the mystical with that physical reality, because the elders would say, okay, that's great, but what are you doing for your community? How does you being mystical and talking to 45 different ETs, you know, all at once, you know, well, did you, you know, did you shovel your driveway? Did you help your mom that day? Did you do something kind? And so they were very balanced in their approach. And so I really enjoyed the topic. You know, I was reading books like uh, Mental Radio about telepathy telepathy and you know my teenage years and lucid dreaming and everything I could shake a stick at but now with that same pursuit having the same intent but grounding it out in practical kindness or compassion or support for the community that I'm in so making it really yeah useful and practical yeah I completely agree I mean somebody that 
I studied uh, a lot when I was venturing into this stuff was Alistair Crowley and he has a big trail that follows him everywhere you go. Even if you talk about him, people, it's touchy, just like you mentioned you know, with the whole, you know, God to creator. And I'm someone who's used the word creator. I agree with that, but you know, again, to each his own in that realm. But when it comes to this stuff, I res I understand why it's touchy with Crowley, right? But you look at his life and the way he ended his life, the way he died, it was really a miserable kind of uh, way to go out compared to how he started. His life wasn't great, but for somebody who was venturing into the mystical without really giving much back other than maybe to those in his secret groups or people who would buy his books and, you know, they weren't easy to read. It's not like he was making this stuff completely available to people, but I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The point, and you know, you're relaying this from the elders, but you have to give back, you know, because none of this stuff in the occult realm is going to be valuable to your life unless you're cleaning your house, taking care of your, you know, kitchen so you can cook good meals and take care of your family and, you know, doing all the things that it takes to just be routine, you know, and that seems mundane, but there's magic in the mundane. Yeah, absolutely. And add on to the to the process of like, you know, engaging in the spiritual pursuits. I think many people get into it because they want something, right? Like, what do you want from meditation? What do you want from these spiritual experiences? What do you want from psychedelics? And, you know, all these different things, not good or bad. It's just, you're like, you want something, right? And what I've noticed that through the dedication of the practices that are laid out through various spirit, spiritual teachings, you know, whether you're looking at uh, yogic philosophy or Christian or uh, Native American, it's, you know, it's the dedication to the process and those experiences are given. Sometimes I call it a universal wink or if I'm in meditation, I've had one of those out of body type of experience. It was always like this force was given to me uh, after I had earned it. It wasn't like I could go and just take it. So that's one distinction I kind of wanted to share. But I was thinking about, you know, I, I've had the blessing to, you know, go to Egypt with Nassim Haramine and the Resident Science Foundation. And we had technology with us, which we weren't supposed to have. And he did it in a very clever clever way. So we could bring him in uh, the three pyramids. Then we're doing, you know, a bit of a ceremony in there. And I had some crazy experiences after that. And I've heard of other people having wild experiences after that as well. And they're actually documenting them right now, but it's a little bit underground because uh, all of this stuff has to be, you know, even if you tell them the regular story, most people don't believe you anyway. So no, no sense of putting it out in the public. So we've got these conversations about what is actually going on in this realm, right? And then we get into spiritual realms. So you look at the autobiography of a yogi and how Yogananda will talk about, you know, when, when his mentor died, he came back in the physical form and explained to him what the next realms were. And you read that book and I don't get any sense of it being lying or manipulation or anything like that, right? So <clears throat> this story, I was kind of thinking about if I should tell a story on this one, because I <clears throat> I know the audience loves stories. So I was thinking, I was like, one one story for me that's coming up a little bit more often is this person I met that I wrote about in the book actually named Tyrone. So I'd done my first ayahuasca experience in Vernon in Canada. And when I was staying at this house, my friends came to visit me and I always thought differently than people, but I didn't recognize that until 
high school, late high school, and, and specifically when everyone was going to university, you know, I was asking these questions about life and what we wanted to do. And everybody was just going to university. Nobody wanted to travel. Nobody was thinking about who they were or what they wanted to experience. It was just, what am I going to take in school so I can get that job so I can start working? It didn't make any sense. So forever, I couldn't talk to anyone about anything, but uh, my best friend probably woke up around 21 or something, 22. So that was one. And then there was another one at like 26. And so there's the three of us that would have these conversations in, in Whistler. So they came to visit me. And as they visited me, we're having a conversation like we're doing now about life, about consciousness, about all these different things. And, you know, we're kind of all listening to each other and going deep and it's fantastic. And as this conversation is unfolding, I start to feel like I'm floating out of my body. I'm completely sober, no ingestion whatsoever. And it, my body is vibrating. And I've had this through meditation and stuff before, but it's just feeling light. And I feel like I'm going out of my body and I'm like, I'm a weird person. So I'm just going to handle this situation and just keep it to myself and let the conversation go because this is awesome. But I'm really curious about what the hell is happening to me. <laughs> so I'll figure that out later. You know, a few minutes go by and my buddy Anders goes, okay, is anybody else really effed up right now? You know, and he looks at me and I'm like, what? And I look at my, my friend Joel and I know him so well, his hands are, you know, face down on the table his, he's looking down and he looks so serious. And I was like, Joel's messed up. And we're like, what the hell is this? And so my buddy's like, we got to go outside. And I wish he didn't do that because I just wanted to stay in that. I wasn't afraid of it. I thought it was awesome. But he's like, let's go get grounded. So we went out and we spoke that night. We didn't really know what that was. It had never happened to me. It never happened to either of them. And it was the same experience for all three of us. We felt like we were floating up, like our bodies were, were going from dense to very light form. And we were vibrating and moving up just, you know, and it felt like you've floating off your feet. So that never happened. So it's important for the story because, you know, the first time I did ayahuasca, I met this guy, Tyrone, and we would do this potluck and say, why do you want to do this? Why do, what are you looking for? What are you looking to get out of this? What's your intent for doing this? We had a really great shaman, a really great group of people, and everything was fantastic. So the whole process about it was really great. And the, you'd ask this guy questions, and he was so on point with spiritual teachings, with knowledge, with, with everything. He was so in-depth with what he knew. And so... I said, hey, man, I'd love to have a coffee with you sometime just to pick your brain and talk about all these subjects. So he says, yeah, sure. And uh, I don't get his phone number because ayahuasca is a bit crazy and, and I miss him. But I end up seeing him a month or two later at another ceremony. I ask again and he comes over to my house. So this guy comes over to my house. He is wearing shorts and uh, flip flops in the middle of winter in Canada. Get in. I just look at him and he knows I'm like, I was like, do you wear that all the time? He's like, yeah, man, I burn hot. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I come in, he sits down and we're starting to have a conversation and it's all going well. And he's every question I ask him, you can just sense the level of knowledge and truth is so deep. You know, you hear it and you just dings. He's like, so I'm like, okay, you know what, man? How do you know this stuff? Like what, what brought you to this understanding that you have right now? And he said, you know, when I've always been curious. I've always been an explorer. But one year I had to know. I had to know what was going on. I had to know the truth about all these realms and all this stuff that I'm hearing. So I read every single book that I could on spirituality, every religious book, every single thing. He's like, I read almost 400 books in a year. And I was like, holy smokes. And I, he goes, but that didn't do it. He's like that, you know, so I, I was left in the same spot. So I go, okay, now what? And he goes, 
I decided at that moment to spend the rest of my life in meditation until I had the answer. And I said, oh, wow. I was like, okay, so what'd you do? And he goes, well, I started meditating. And I was like, well, how, how long? He goes, 20 hours a day, like 20 hours a day. I was like, uh, I was like, what'd you eat? He's like, my brother would drop off food every couple of weeks. I might eat just light food, vegetables and rice every now and then. But I just stayed in meditation. And I said, well, um, what did you meditate on? And he said, one with God. And I was like, holy smokes. And, he, and he's, like, he's like, Matt, I was never coming out until I knew. And he's like, you cannot fake this. He's like, there's no way I was coming out. And I just stayed there. And he said, it just so happened to be a hundred days that I felt like I was getting electrocuted. And he goes, I didn't know if I actually was because I've just been sitting in meditation this whole time. I didn't know if I was actually being electrocuted, what was going on or something else was happening. And then he said, basically, I realized it was a, some sort of other experience. I was asked to go to the other side. And he told me that he was afraid to. He's like, I was, I was offered the opportunity to go the other side, but he's like, I wasn't ready for it. He goes, and I also had the choice to come back. Uh, and he was like, I was offered that conscious choice and I wanted to come back. So I chose coming back. And he said, but when I, when I came back, what I had to do now was observe my body for two weeks, take care of itself. So the Holy Spirit or, or the Tao or whatever you want to call it, he's like, I couldn't make a choice for two weeks. So I came out of it, you know, I was able to contact my brother, but he's like, I wasn't making the choice for anything that was happening. So he gave me this example of his brother's like, man, Tyrone, like you're, you're bit weird right now. I was like, we're going to go get some food. You need some food in you. So they go to the restaurant and he said, as they were going around ordering, he was curious how they were going to, how he was going to order. Cause he couldn't speak or do anything with his own conscious, conscious free will. And so it gets around to him. And then the lady opens up the, the menu and he's able to point at the thing that he wants. And he goes, this, this went on for about, you know, two, two weeks and three weeks. And then I was able to get my own cognizance back and he goes it was just to show me that the holy spirit or god or the presence is always there it's always taking care of you but you can't live in that state he's like you're not supposed to live in that state we want to be human we want to be here and and there's a bit more of it but i'll say as he's telling me this story i had put my hands under my chair because i was floating out of my body so I hadn't even registered consciously that my hands were under my chair sitting on this little table as he's telling me the story and I'm, I'm holding because I'm trying not to float away, which obviously makes no sense. <laughs> and so I, I kind of registered this as like, hey, hold on, man, I got to go. I got to go to the washroom. So I go to the washroom and when I get there, I go to the washroom, I go to wash my hands and my face is distorting like, like you're super high on mushrooms or something. It is distorting. And again, completely sober, no influences. And my face in this fit is, is moving around. And I just look at it for a few seconds and I go, I'm not going to worry about that. <laughs> and so go back, finish to the rest of his stories. And, you know, he was such an interesting person. He said, you know, there's prerequisites to me being here. And I was like, what the heck does that mean? You know, so you're talking about these, these things. And I, and so he said, I, you can't fake um, this process. And so I said, well, what's the difference between how you live now and how you were before. And he said, when I walk, I walk. When I eat, I eat. When I drive, I drive. And he also, interestingly enough, defended himself in the Supreme Court of Canada for having a marijuana grow up. And so he continued to tell me the story. He goes, when I came back, I wanted to be, I wanted to see, you know, what, if, what I knew. And he goes, 
I have money. I'm financially solid. But the only reason I chose this was because it was measurable. So I wanted to see if I could manifest a million dollars without doing anything. I wasn't going to invest. I was going to do nothing. And he goes, it was just because of the number, right? He goes, it was something measurable. So he said, it took me 10 days and I manifested $300,000 without trying, without doing anything. And I knew it worked. So I just stopped. And from how I understand what he said and what I understand about how this realm works for people that are curious, because people always ask me, like, how did he do it or things like that? You know, in the Bible, it says, ask and it is given. Pray as if you've already received, right? And, you know, you look at Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, which I've done his advanced workshops and gone down all those rabbit holes. Every attraction one have gone down them. Well, a universe had like a million dollars. You drop that hundred pound boulder in this like open ocean, right? Crystal clear. And it starts to make waves in the ether for you to bring you back what you've asked for, right? But immediately what we do is we drop in like 98 pounds of doubt. So it distorts the signal right away. So you have no faith. You're, there's no certainty. Now, even if you have like, say, uh, 50% doubt, right? Well, what happens throughout your day is you have all this, all these thoughts, 70 to 90,000 thoughts. Most of them are repetitive. And you keep re and you just, you know, they go nowhere. So now you have all these sprinkles distorting what's going on in your field. So all he did was make the prayer with no attachment and move about his way, walking when he walked, eating when he eats, driving when he drives. And so when you talked about like the, the experiences, I had never met anyone like that. I've never uh, met anyone since. And uh, it was, it was totally nuts. And so so that's why I could go. He told me more things, but I'll just leave it there because I could I could go on forever. No, I love it. I think that's one of the many moments that we can share here. That story, me visualizing. I've never met this person, but as you tell this story, truth, you can feel it. It's permeating. I, I definitely am curious to meet this uh, gentleman or someone like him as I travel through my sphere. But you mentioned he had a, a cannabis grow up. I'm wondering if cannabis was a part of his practice at all if that was included, because I often wonder being a daily uh, marijuana smoker, I'm like, am I hurting my ability to get into this stuff? Because when I first started martial arts, it was about 14, did it for about three years until marijuana came into my life. And contrary to what people were trying to tell me or what you might think, cannabis helped me get closer to what I wanted to achieve because it kind of allowed me to focus in and I would smoke and I would train and I had in my backyard was this little forest and I had a, a punching bag tied up to a tree and I would just be out there for hours doing my moves, you know, feeling like the different waves. And I, I really respect cannabis for helping me do that and achieve that. But now, you know, since I'm not training to that degree, I'm wondering like, is this thing holding me back? And I wonder if you've heard, you know, through your many experiences and conversations, you train people, you help coach people, right? Is this something that you experienced or what would you say to that cannabis and its role in, in training and well-being? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I think it's, it's really individual, right? You look at the Diaz brothers and the, the last thing I'm going to do if I'm high is do any kind of exercise. So for me, it does not work. You know what I mean? I'm going to sit in the couch. I'm just gonna be useless. So each individual is, is very different. So we should honor that. But I think also there's, there's, you don't have to do it this way, but you know, I was on this psychedelics uh, podcast. I've done it was a summit, right? And and they're doing you know talking about mushrooms and ayahuasca and things like that. And when I went to Burning Man the first year, my name they gave me the name ayahuasca because I didn't shut up about it. But then the next year, you they didn't 
really know, you know, about it. I had to explain it to people. The third year, most people started to know. Fourth year, almost everybody knew. So it became this uh, thing, right? And so I feel like, you know, you don't give a six-year-old a Ferrari. You know what I mean? There, there, there are tools out there to be used and explored. So what do you want from them? But I think everything can be gained through uh, a conscious, direct experience and genuine asking with spirit. And that's the one thing Tyrone was teaching me. He said, you cannot fake the intent. And with all this nonsense in the world, they've been really thinking, what do we know? right? Our history is distorted. These screens are distorted. Everything's distorted. So at first it was like, okay, what do we know? Well, we know what we can do. You know, I know I can kind of do a podcast and I can drive a car and I can, you know, if I can build something, if you've built a birdhouse before, you could probably do it again. You, you, you know what you can do. But other than that, really the only thing and the most important thing is, you know, your intent, you know, your intention. And so if your intention is lined up with the creator, with the natural harmony of all things to be of service, all those virtuous aspects, we can really connect to what it is that we want. So for using a tool, for example, whether it's marijuana or, or psychedelics or ayahuasca, we can go right to the source first, right? And then, so that's my, my higher, you know, idea of that question. But then the lower one, it's like, you know, my, my elders, David Lombard says, I never change my consciousness because you're not going to be able to know what's real and what's not, what's you and what isn't. It, it adds a layer to it. So then the most practical answer that I would give is, is break. So you know what being sober is, you know, like truly no, no inhibitance of your mind. Right. So like cold training or something like that is like very sobering, right. It like forces the elements into your body. So I would just uh, say it's individual, but when something becomes habitual and maybe you can't stop it and it's not serving that focus just to explore that and take a break. So you just have a a distinction from training with it and training without it. Like the, like France, for example, the Diaz brothers, you know, there's no, they're just, they are who they are. You know, I wouldn't tell them <laughs> that's the way they want to be. That's the way they want to be. And they're incredible athletes, you know? So I hope that's kind of helpful. Yeah, it is. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. And I've always sort of felt that like there, there was this part of cannabis that showed me so much that was spiritual and mystical in comparison to what normal, ordinary life was showing me. But then there was like an overuse where it might be like actually inhibiting further progression past that point had brought me to. And I'm sure that that might be the case for some people too, but you're right. It is, it is definitely individual. I mean, I was just on a show with the Airy brothers and they run marathons on psychedelics. They take mushrooms and run marathons. So you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's individual case by case, but yeah. And that, and I, I appreciate your point of view as well, because to hear that you've done it sober and you've done it, you know, and also experienced ayahuasca and all these things, it, it brings some, it's like refreshing, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not the bad apple that I thought I was like, Matt's done drugs too. Okay, cool. You know, <laughs> but here we are now. And I want to, yeah, give you an opportunity to, again, like go a little further with the ayahuasca experience. Cause you brought that up, obviously going to Burning Man, you know, tinfoil hat on Burning Man's <laughs> a little shady now. I don't know if I would go anymore with the whole transhumanist agenda, but you know, do you think there is like a darker side to this ayahuasca becoming a trend, you know, cause like, you know, elders kind of put it to you, you know, you, these things are tools. You want to respect them. You know, I've heard that from other places too. Like these plants are 
tools and, and we need to respect them, not just, you know, tools though, but they're entities in themselves, you know, they have a consciousness in themselves. And I wonder if there's like a commercialization or a devaluing that you see going on. Cause it is very pervasive. I mean, a lot of people since starting the show have asked me when I'm going to do ayahuasca and I'm like, I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really thought about it. I don't know if I ever will, you know, it hasn't come to me organically, you know? So, but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's being overused or? Yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal question, you know, and to go back to the cannabis thing, what two of the elders and one of them was the ayahuascaro said, it said that, that cannabis is being overused and not respected, right? So you might go drink beers with your buddies. We're humans, but if you're drinking beers seven days a week, maybe not ideal. You know what I mean? If you're uh, going to the movies, right? There's nothing wrong with going to the movies, but if you're going to the movies seven days a week, right? What are you doing? What's habitual? What's consistent? So how can we put as many positive inputs to our life you know, as, as possible. So maybe you're reading spiritual stuff. Maybe you're doing a bit of meditation. Maybe you're volunteering. You know, you look at all these positive inputs of who you truly want to be. How many of those are getting ticked off or how many ones where you are kind of numbing out, right? Am I numbing out for a few beers tonight? You know what I mean? Am I numbing out by going to watch an NFL or am I just too much on social? All of that counts. Every single one is kind of like the same thing. So we want to register what we're doing and why we're doing it and the amount of you. So we can just be honest with ourselves about the purpose and how we're trending, right? Because you, you you map that out over 365 days, right? Like when I've been telling my buddies out of shape right now, I say, yo, just do a, a set of deadlift and squat every single day for 365 days or 100 kettlebell swings. You'll be a totally different person, but they're putting hard zeros, you know, and that's the issue. So as far as the ayahuasca one, I've heard so many different, perspectives on it. For sure, it's getting commercialized. For sure, I've heard of many places doing it in a way that doesn't resonate with me in a very caring way. It's very, let's just say, fast food service type. And I think that can create a lot of harm. You know, people conducting ceremony with with no real background and no real understanding of what it is, I think that's incredibly dangerous. I have heard of horror stories of you know, entities and stuff like that from my friend Hamilton Souther, who, you know, he's been on the podcast a few times and, and he is an ayahuascaro down in Peru and, and runs retreats. So some of the stuff he told me is very frightening. And so the first thing I'd say is if you are called to do it, then definitely respect the process and go to somebody who has uh, that element. But again, another horror story I've heard of, of down there, they need money. So you're getting random people and you might not have the distinction to know that it's a safe one. Right. So now I'm going to kind of keep beating it up a little bit here. Going to Burning Man, then as it became more popular, I heard these people that like they had their regular life, then they did ayahuasca, and all of a sudden they were spiritual. All of a sudden they were connected to the universe and God and all these different things. Right. But their job remained the same. Everything else remained the same other than this glimpse into something greater, this opportunity. And that's all it was a reminder for me. And that's why I stopped doing it because I, I knew what the message was right? It was an opportunity, but I had the same opportunity through meditation and that's more prolonged, right? So it was like a visit that I got to go home, have these deeper understandings and these deeper healings and just this immense gratitude for being here. But I was like, now I got to put in the work, right? And this is with the, you know, the esoteric and spiritual community. Some of this stuff I feel is a little bit misleading. Now I was coaching this one person and she goes, you know, my, all my group is saying, you know, the only thing we do is what's an F yes, 
right? Everything's got to be an F yes, right? And I thought about it for a second because I hadn't heard that yet. And I was like, bullshit. I was like, bullshit. There's no way an an athlete, a high-performing athlete, which is my background, would ever achieve what they achieved by only doing what they wanted to do was like an F yes, right? Nobody ever did cardio and was like, F yes, I'm going to go run some cardio, right? Very few people go grab a cucumber and be like, F yes, I'm going to crush this cucumber. You know, it's like, usually the F yes is like the thing you probably shouldn't do. You know, it's like, F yes, man, I'm just going to slam these beers and think about nothing. Like, that sounds great. That's nice and easy. And they're pulling us into that. We're, we're sedated as a culture, moving into Wally world. Everything's easy. So, you know, some of the spiritual work is challenging. It's hard. It takes effort. So they get the glimpse, but then there's no input. And I look and it ends up maybe setting them back on their spiritual understanding. And that's why the question that I have for people who will want to explore any of those things is why not go direct to the source, to the creator, which is within you? You know, you were created by the creator you know, the divine spark, whatever you think it, you know, this is my theory anyway, but I think we're created by something and that something is in all of us. And so, you know, that soul, that conscience, and uh, I can't remember what book I was reading, read all kinds of stuff, but it just says like, that's the difference between us and animals is this, this electrical impulse between the impulse, like of uh, the electric impulse of what we're receiving and that gap to make a choice. And that gives us free will. That gives us understanding. That gives us contemplation, this little tiny gap. But that's why we need to exercise that gap. Going down the road, somebody cuts me off and I just flip them the bird and freak out, right? I didn't really use the the opportunity for that gap, you know? (laughs) And so not a good or bad, but we can can understand that and we can start to observe ourselves as we've, we've done a pattern for a week or a month or six months and say, you know what? I'm really out of shape right now. I feel terrible. I'm grumpy as hell. What am I doing? And you can start writing down what you're eating, what your habits are, what your inputs are. In Buddhism, they talk about mental nutriments. So when I was in Nepal meditating with monks because I wanted to be enlightened, right? So I figured, you know, Tibetan monks are the most enlightened people in the world. I'm going to go hang out with them. And it was a very uh, wonderful experience. But they just, you know, they just talk about the mental nutriments. What are you inputting? You know, each day. So when we're looking for the mystical, if we don't change our behaviors, it's just like you know, spiritual liposuction, right? It could be really transformative on that uh, spiritual realm. And you're like, holy smokes, wow, what a, what an opportunity I'm giving here. What an, an expansion in consciousness. But then they go, holy crap, I have to change things. Now I have to operate differently and they don't have the spiritual strength or will or tools or whatever it is to then begin to walk the path. Because I think walking the path of you know, a real quote unquote spiritual person. It's a good man. It's a good woman. It's doing what's right. And in, in our culture not right now, it's doing what's, what's right, even in the face of what's, unco- what's uncomfortable. Half of these spiritual communities and these health experts are telling you to go get this experimental thing with, with no, you know, reason for it other than this is what the hive is telling them to do because they don't have courage to stand up. They don't want to lose their money. They don't want to get attacked by other people. They don't want to ruffle feathers. Well, are you doing what's right, even though it's uncomfortable? And so I kind of got off on a tangent. You want to reel me in or, or add something? Yeah, I love it. I think that's a great tangent to go on because that's, you know, a big influence on why this show got started. You know, the whole experimental push to put us all in, you know, a different society, you know, redefine the paradigm, pushing us towards this more, you know, my opinion here, not Matt's 
this more transhumanist society, you know, plugging us into the matrix, you know, putting things in our bodies that are going to potentially make us more, you know, in the matrix, however you want to define that, whether that's, you know, having a new identification that you now have to show at certain places to do certain things, you know, adding another layer of exclusivity to the already, you know, stratified society we're living in. And I just think, you know, the whole thing is a push from the pharmaceutical companies to make as much money as they can, like usual. And, you know, they're in the the business of, of death. But, you know, in reverse of that, I mean, so many people listening to this show are aware of all that. I like to focus more on the solution. So when it comes to diet, you know, building a foundation for health starts with that physical work, but you have to put the right you know, not only mental nutrients, but nutrients, straight up nutrients. And so how does that start for you, Matt? Were you always a healthy eater? Obviously your father is a martial artist, so I'm sure you probably were eating pretty healthy from the beginning. Am I wrong? Is that an incorrect assumption or? Well, you're, you're a little, my dad did martial arts. He's a very interesting man. (laughs) We'll just put it that way. Who had an affinity for martial arts and taught me a lot of stuff. So You know, for me, our diet was okay. That's something that even with all the podcasts, I haven't mastered. You know, I explored with different things, right? So I was vegetarian for a couple of years. I didn't go hardcore vegan. That was too much. But I did that actually until my Native Americans, I would talk to them about it and their their idea of it. So factory farming is horrible. You know, it's absolutely horrible. I don't like the idea of killing anything. You know, I don't want to do that. So I did it for ethical reasons. I don't want to harm anything. And just, you know, whether you agree with it or not, they said it was like the balance of life. Like one, one example they gave is like, you know, you take what you need. The creator gave us what we need, but we would get one moose or one thing to feed the family. We needed that right for our muscles to grow, to, you know, to do what we needed to feed our communities. Right. But now we have these factory farming and we have, you know, I was thinking about this skip back in the day. It was actually after an ayahuasca. Uh, interestingly enough, was this like idea of just, you know, a tiny farm, a community. Right. And then it said, you know got your hamburgers and things like that right then it goes all you can eat hamburgers you know 9.99 and then you think you see the farm and this little tiny farm now has to produce more and produce more and you'd see the effect of that of that fatness and that greed and that overconsumption, right that out of balance nature and that's the idea is we're out of whack we're out of harmony with existence you know and that's what's going down so as far as food goes i've interviewed a lot of different people like what you're talking about the transhuman agenda is real. It's a real thing. Their plan is a real thing. They've written it down. It's absolutely horrendous. The fourth industrial revolution by Klaus Schwab, Agenda 2030, all of that is legit. They're pushing it. It's It sucks. You don't want any part of that. You know, you can't patent nature. So Monsanto genetically modified seeds and started to patent, you know, all the crops, right? W- which is terrible. There's so much metals in our food now. All the, all the doctors I'm interviewing is like, we're, we're having a metal buildup in like the breasts and getting breast cancer and all these different parts. So even in, in things like cucumber, like you should still eat cucumber, but you want an organic cucumber if you can, because they put the metals in the water. So then it becomes, uh, you know, and the glyphosate and it soaks it up. And I was like, what? It's like, come on, I can't even eat a cucumber now. So being aware of what you eat, I think is really important. If you can get uh, grass fed organic f- meat, it's expensive, but you know, do it if you can do what you can as much as you can. Right. And, and, and see how you can navigate the realm because, you know, if you're eating McDonald's every single day, obviously you're going to get a result, right? And so if you can start to move 
in a more positive direction. So for me right now, it's very simple. Whole foods, right? Uh, organic meat, if I can get it, vegetables and fruits. I still drink beer probably too often in the summer because I just chill out and drink a couple of beers at night. You know, I know it's not, I know it's not peak performing. And then also I'll do uh, a super greens because one thing for the gut health is I had this one guy on my podcast, I forget his name now, but I said, what's the number one tip for gut health? Because so many people are, are struggling with gut health. And he said, diversity. Your gut wants diversity. So I'm like, well, I eat the same thing all the time. So, so a super greens and a super reds, if you can find them, that gets a ton of diversity in there. Keep it simple, but whole foods, right? Fruits, vegetables, you know what it is. And you know what all the crap is, all the chips, all the chocolate bars, all the sugars, cut out all sugars, watch out for drinks. They're sneaky buggers, you know, so much sugar in there. Then you just cut those things out and just start to educate yourself and write down what you're eating and just look at the ingredients. So, you know, and adding seeds, one of my buddies is a big uh, food guy and he just says, add seeds into everything. So natural foods, seeds, nuts, legumes, start writing it down, tracking and just hearing people's opinions and then, you know, seeing how your body feels, right? And that's the best way to do it. So over time, you're going to get better. So right now I'm clean, I'm eating, you know, better than ever, but who knows, you know, if I can get, if I can get to a point where I have like our organic farm guy, you know, get my meat and organic vegetables and just meat and vegetables for me, I'm set. I'm set with that. Right on. Yeah. And that's why I asked because I love, you know, measuring it in that way. We talk to so many different people and we find out little tidbits like that, like seeds, you know, chia seeds are something I love. I mean, I drink them in water more often than I ever have. I used to get the little mama chias in the glass bottles, but like you said, sugar, watch out. So now I just, <laughs> just buy chia seeds and make it myself. I'll put it in green tea and yeah, it's, it's actually immensely, you know, sig like hydrating and chia even was used by the indigenous in South America. They would keep these little pouches, put it in their water. It was like a, you know, superfood. So there's all these little pieces of information that we can get from Sharon in this way. Now you sprout, are all do sprouts. Yeah. Well, got a sprout guy, you can just sprout like, and they're like the most nutrient dense thing. Super easy sprouts, seeds, sprouts, crush it with those two. But yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry to get distracted. But the one thing That's I did right. want to add on, this is a super tangent. So we'll see where we go from here. But with this whole thing with what's going on in the world, okay, I did, a, I just finished doing a law summit. So we've interviewed about 25 different experts from around the world that are experts in law. None of them are lawyers. They're apparently a part of the problem because they are a part of the bar association. You make your oath to the bar association. So that a society, you're not, you're not, that's in their realm, not, not the public, the general public, like you and I, you want to get into the private. So what they're basically doing with admiralty maritime law, it's like a pirate ship with their own rules and acts and statutes while they're getting you in their jurisdiction, but they're conditioning us through our school and everything else to believe we have to obey these act, acts and statutes. So the way it works is, you know, the creator created man. The creator gave man dominion over land, air, and water, which is law. Man created government to kind of organize its things, its properties and different stuff. Governments created corporations. And what's happened is corporations have usurped the government, right? Pretty easy to know that through money and business and stuff. Now the government is trying to usurp God. And so all this stuff that's going on is really fascinating. So it's interesting to see all of these people, apparently the 1611 King James Bible is the contract on this planet. It's all commerce. 
The reason why it's that Bible is because the queen swears her coronation oath on it, and it's that specific one, and she swears to uphold that. She swears to uphold the realm. So when these law experts go into law, you know, into courts and these high courts and deal with stuff, and they really know their shit, an average person is going to get smoked. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't try. You're going to get smoked. It takes a while to figure it out. And even I don't know, and I just did all these interviews. But they can quote that Bible, and they get a, a response. You know, that's what the, that's the highest contract because it's all contract law. So men and women only have to abide by the rules of God, the creator, which is don't harm all the common sense, common law. It's common sense. You, you come and drive your truck into my house. You got to fix all that stuff. The hell are you doing? You know, you got to, you harm me, you stab me, whatever. That's all stuff that's, you know, you, you are under God, but everything else is an act or a statute that goes to a banker for money. So, so in this stuff, right, it, it goes, they're all talking about the Bible and the Bible talks about the mark of the beast and then getting into this patent stuff. And so you can't, can't patent nature, right? Not allowed to do it. Dr. David Martin, who's been on my show a few times, talks about that and does really great research and, and all kinds of awesome presentations. So they patent the seed so they can patent that seed. So this, this vaccine is genetic therapy. It's gene modification. Trying to patent so, humans. So, right, with yeah. this whole AI thing. So if it if it changes your DNA and they, and they have a patent on it, which they do, who owns that patent? Yeah. I, and I'm like, boom, like, oh my gosh, is like, is that what's happening? Yeah. I don't know, you know, like it, it's, but it's very, very plausible with, with everything else that's going on. So, you know, I you have say, to do it and you have to do it through consent. You look at the form and it says, I consent. Right. And this is spiritual war warfare. So maybe this is the harvest from the Bible. You well, know, we, we really don't know. It's really nuts. I, I love that this is the tangent you decided to go on. I think we'll <laughs> lead the show with this because I <laughs> I love this topic. You know, the whole idea that your name, you know, in capital letters is not you. I'm sure you're aware of this, right? Like on your social security, you know, from the States, we get the social security card. I don't know if that's the same in Canada, but we get the card has our number and it has your name in capital letters. And every time you deal with the gov, you have that name in capital letters. It's not, you know, my name in lowercase letters, the way I would spell it. If I was going to write you a letter or, you know, write a poem or something, it's spelled in all capital letters and the way I really kind of jumped into this conspiracy stuff when I was really younger, one of the weird sectors that my life pulled me into was this whole realm. And I remember I got a speeding ticket and an older buddy of mine who was very smart as far as all this goes, you know, it seemed like he was a wizard from that age. Like he came to me with a document a piece of paper, right. That had like a gold trim. And he's like, here, take this gold Sharpie, sign your name. We sent this document that basically declared myself as a sovereign citizen in this case. So the speeding ticket was null and void because of exactly what you just said. It was, I was basically saying, I don't recognize this court, this admiralty law court as, you know, having any dominion over me because I'm following common law, you know, so that, you know, speeding ticket, maybe that's a gray area. And they were just like, F this guy. We don't want to deal with him in court. We're just going to throw it out. It's his first speeding ticket anyways. But that showed me uh, a look into this higher realm and what you're talking about, the barn, you know, that's the British 
registry that goes straight to the UK, which is different for you guys in Canada, but for us in the United States, it's like, why are they, you know, why do we have British lawyers in the United States? You know, that doesn't make any sense to me from the paradigm we've been taught about the American revolution and all this, you know, it's very obvious after all the research I've done that we are not what it seems to be in this, you know, lawful patriotic country. We're very much still a part of a larger empire and law is one of the many ways that they do that, particularly admiralty law. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's so much to unpack there. It's, it's the slave system of uh, humanity, I guess your birth certificate, the registry of that. So what happens is that's what makes you the corporation, right? So they start trading on that like cattle. So, you know, if you have uh, cows, right, and you have 10 cows, well, you have a certain amount of wealth. But if you have 10,000 cows, you have more wealth. And their birth certificate is what they use to register us as cattle. So what they've done is because the countries went in debt, they use that as collateral, the, the citizens of the country as collateral to the, uh, what's the, the International Monetary Fund or the Global Bank? I, and that's I, how this bank had uh, conquered each country. Right. You know, if you look at the uh, confessions of an economic hitman and you study banking, you realize what they would do is put countries in debt. Then uh, they would own them. Right. Rockefeller said, was it Rockefeller? Yeah. He said, I care not uh, who stands, you know, on the throne. You know, he who controls the money supply controls Britain and I control the money supply. So that's kind of what's been going on. And you can look at the creature from Jekyll Island, right? Taking over your Federal Reserve in the United States. And all of this stuff, but that's the deception. That's that's the grand deception on the planet that everybody needs to wake up to because it's all contractual consent-based. And you look at this matrix, this system that they made up, this illusionary world, this fake world. When they're pulling you into court, like you said, with the all caps name, it's a fiction, right? It's like Matt Belair's business, right? It's not me as the man, it's, it's his business. So, but then when you try to apply it in court and understand it, you know, you really kind of understand, you need to understand you're playing chess and when you when you get good at it, you realize you have all the best players. They only have a bunch of pawns. But what they do is they make you so afraid of the game in general. You think that they have all these, you know, crazy things. But once you start pulling it away, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, you realize it's just an illusion and you hold all the power. You have to know how to play the game. And so it's amazing that your friend, um, you know, shared that with you. There's a channel called Justinian Deception. There's, you know, I check out the Choose Freedom Law Summit. It kind of summarizes what's going on there about these jurisdictions. But basically what they're doing is these pirate ships have usurped the land and they're just, they're fishing to get you in their jurisdiction, right? And so if you're on my ship, I can tell you what to do, what acts and statutes. And, you know, you know, you're basically paying the bank. It always has to do with a bill, right? And so as a man or a woman on the land, you, you have nothing to do with that. So even with the police speeding ticket, you have a right to travel like on the land. Right. I didn't agree to 100K or, you know, and this is where if if you're operating in honor, you know, you're going to maybe speed, but you're not going to go 100 through a 40 kilometer kid zone because then you're just, a, you know, an a-hole. Right. People who, you know, don't need that system, they they act in honor. That's dishonorable. You shouldn't be doing that. Right. You shouldn't be putting people at risk. Right. But if you're on the highway, you got a nice car, you know. It, you know, goes a buck fifty. You got an open road. You're doing 150k. No one's around. That's all right. You know, you can control the car, figure it out. You know, but if you suck at driving, don't drive 150k. Drive 90 like a grandma. You know, the side lane. You got to know your own capability. So it does come back to honor, but it's a massive bag of worms that everybody needs to figure out, and especially in the states. Now, this whole thing I've said from the beginning is an attack on the United States because there's something called the Iron Mountain Report, and there's 
speculation whether this was a legit report or not, but it basically was supposed to be commissioned by Kennedy saying, what threats do the United States have if we achieve peace here, right? If, If the great experiment, the United States works, what threats do we have? And this world power, the only country that's a problem is yours because you have the best military, you have the constitution, which is incredible, like that your, for any political system is the greatest, smartest political system of all time. Because right now with all this nonsense, you look at Canada and Australia, we get one blanket of nonsense for everybody. Yours is the only country where you can go to a different state and there's less nonsense. And it's also easier to hold the people accountable. And every intricacy of it is actually phenomenal to prevent tyranny, which inevitably happens. But so so you have a constitution, which is a, which is a problem if you're trying to enslave your people. And then you have the Second Amendment. And you're, so that means you're the only country in the world that can protect itself through the people. The only one. Everyone else can't. So if you guys fall, we all fall. And it talked about that. So what they needed to do to destroy your country is destroy the middle class, which they are doing, and get rid of the Second Amendment, which they're trying to do. So good luck with that. So I don't think you guys are going to fall, but they are attacking you specifically. And that's why Canada's getting smoked, because strategically, if they, you know, ruin us, we're just above you. You know what I mean? So it's not ideal. So these are definitely trying times. And for people to understand the bigger picture of what's going on is really important because this world isn't what you think it is. You know, you look at these big organizations like the World Health Organization. What is that? What is what is what's that one that's supposed to be the good guys? I can't remember. Oh, it's the UN. The UN. Yeah, yeah. You're basically the worst. You know, I was like, wait, what? UN's the worst? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> right? And how terrible all these, yeah, how terrible all these uh, organizations are. So yeah. that's the wake up part. And then what do we do? You know, we participate in the solution. We get spiritually, mentally, and emotionally aligned to you know, the creator. And that's, that's always cooperative. Right. And that's what we can do. And we have to let other people make their choice. But I feel like that's within this battle. We're going to be okay. You know, it's like, I'm not going to participate in this new Babylonian system that requires me to be an AI robot that they harvest all of my soul with. You know what I mean? I'm just going to live out here, you know, and be like the next generation of Amish or something. I'm fine with a tent and some fish. I am not participating in that whatsoever. Right. And, you know, I wonder as someone who has such close relationships with Native Americans, that's been something like my father, best friends with a guy who's local, you know, Pequot, Mohegan in Connecticut. There's a bunch of different tribes, bunch of different names, but, you know, either way, my whole life I've had a certain reverence and I didn't know why. And I'm starting to understand it more and more as I meet actual indigenous people. But, you know, from their perspective, what have you gleaned in their opinion of the United States or Canadian government or any government in general? Because their history is so, you know, tragic and all wrapped up in that, the colonization. And I agree with you. I think the Constitution is such a, a great document with all of its little, you know, tiny things that go along with, you know, creating this society we're in. But what you said, the American experiment, I mean, that's really powerful. That's what happened, you know, and the indigenous people seem to have, you know, taken the short end of the stick in that agreement. I wonder if, if that is something that comes up when you're talking to them, the wisdom and and like how they see this relationship now, and especially with the tyranny being so obvious to us, but maybe not so obvious 20, 30 years ago when it was go USA. And everyone was like, 
yeah, like America rules, you know, and, and, you know, they were kind of just the crying Indians with the tear running down their cheek. But now with, you know, the SJWs everywhere, you know, oh, indigenous people matter, but it's like a kind of a, you know, fake, you know, caring. Whereas you, you obviously proof positive, you dedicated your life to learning from all sorts of people. And they happen to be one of them. I resonate with that. I've taken so much knowledge from uh, indigenous people and it's added to a lot of value to my life. But yeah, if that's like a super long tangent question, I'm sorry, but what are your thoughts on their perspective? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. So I can only speak to my experience from learning from, you know, who I learned from. So I've had indigenous panels on my podcast. I spent about two years, maybe even three years learning from David Lombear Senapas, who's a Mi'kmaq good relationship with uh, Clifford Mahuti, who's a Zuni elder. And I can, and I can just share what they told me and from the best of my ability of what's going on. So one of the big things is that their cultures was destroyed almost, you know, they, they have an oral history. All of them told me separately that they have a 20,000 year oral history. Now for some fun stuff, they all believe in sky people or star people to them. That's nothing special. That's understanding sheeps and dogs existed you know, it's not a really a big deal to them. So because it's an oral history, you know, you wipe out the children, how does it get passed on? And that was the main concern of Clifford Mahudi, because he said with his grandfather who had deep knowledge, he was like the first generation that started to get a little bit more modern, right? Because Clifford's like maybe 80 something years old now, I'm just guessing, right? We started to get a little bit more modern. So Clifford wanted to go out. He wanted to play with his friends. And he goes, my, my grandfather get mad at me. He goes, I understand now why he'd be mad because these stories need to be passed down. So Clifford's like, I have no one to pass the stories down to. And now what we're, we're seeing is that the children weren't taught their proper history, that they're mixing things up. They're taking a thing from a tribe over here and there. And, and I'm no expert. I, I couldn't tell you whether it's true or not. I just listened to the elders talk about it, to what they were facing. And, and I asked Clifford, well, how do, we, how do we reserve this history for your people? He said, honestly, I don't know. You know, so I got to hope that there's some sort of solution for that. But that's unfortunate because Clifford, it was a civil engineer. And, you know, so he worked for the government and he said, I wanted to work for the government to see how they operated. I want to see both sides. He also has his traditional teachings and, you know, some of the stuff he told me about he's Hopi and, and, you know, talking about like basically summoning beings. So I think the one story on my podcast, like an ET came down and and did their thing. Like, you know, this is all secretive, super intense stuff. But I, you know, I think he's, and he said on, on all their sacred sites, right? Where there's government sites now, that was their sacred sites where they had proof. And that's where there's, you know, the special places to go connect with these people or beings or however that worked, you know? So all of those are now military sites or whatever. They moved them off that land. So you have this destruction of history. And even with the, you know, the white culture, what I'm learning, the European culture, whatever you want to call it, that's all been written by the winners. So half the time, you know, I'm, it's probably the complete opposite of what I've taught, right? Like my buddy's a medical doctor, you know, and like, it's like, well, do you know about the Flexen report and them like, you know, manipulating modern medicine? So that way it's bought and paid and you're only being educated in pharmaceuticals and not terrain theory about natural cures and, and common sense and all this stuff. Like you're basically, you know, brainwashed into believing only a pharmaceutical is going to produce health. Right. And they don't have enough time. And I've had enough po- doctors on my podcast who kind of woke up on that system to say it's an incomplete system. It's good for some things, 
But when we're talking about health and truth and, and the way the human system works and what's possible, they're not being taught that, right? They're being taught how to issue a pharmaceutical that makes it addictive, you know, and you go to the next one, and the next one. So one of the things I learned from Brian Francis, he's a Canadian Mi'kmaq. And uh, he said that, you know, when the French came over, they actually had a good relationship with the French. And I guess the natives could speak like eight languages or something like English, French, Spanish, all these different things and had a great relationship with them. Then the British come over and the British were wondering what was going on. And I guess the British thought that the French had conquered them, but it was a peaceful relationship. It was a cooperative relationship that they had. And then the British thought they conquered them. So the British just conquered the French so that they believe that they just take over, you know, these types of people. So there's horrible stuff that happened all over the place. So with the whole thing that's going on now, right? I talked to Brian, Brian about this. And I said, Brian, like, you, you know, these needles are dangerous, right? And he said, yeah, but no one will listen to me, right? They've got them on, they've got them on government school systems, government indoctrination, government, you know, plots of land. Right. So there's a big disconnect from their history. And this obviously isn't everyone or, or every reserve or everything. There's probably so much that, well, there's definitely so much I, I don't know. I only know a little bit of a little bit, but that's kind of the feedback I'm getting from the reserves. So I hope, and not all, right. So my friend that you listen to, you listen to Sewa, right? This Yaki Native American talk about her story and what happened and how her reserve was sprayed. Then the government came in and wanted to test everybody, right? Now her father has sadly passed uh, a month after getting the, sh the second shot because people coerced him into doing it. And when Clifford was, you know, working with the governments, he said basically they had, uh, you know, these tribal chiefs and they've just sold out and they're basically government employees now anyway. So you give them, so you have this, you know, hierarchy system uh, already. So, so all of that is super depressing. I think that their, you know, their lineage, I have to hope for that, that, 20,000 year history is going to be preserved somewhere. They probably aren't going to tell, if they are preserving it, they probably are not going to tell anyone. It's probably being preserved in some sort of way that we're not going to know about, which would be great. So I hope it's just preserved, but that's kind of how, how I understand it. And with Brian Francis and like this whole social justice warrior nonsense, you know, I would talk to him about the school systems. He's a documentarian and did a documentary on the school systems. And he said, you know, any horrible thing you can imagine happened on mass there. And I'd ask about solutions and he didn't have anger in his heart. You know what I mean? He's like, we can only move forward. We have to figure out the way forward together. We, you know, of all the treaties in Canada that we, I think there's 1500 and we've broken 1498, right? So it just has to be a reimagination of moving forward in, in a real way, because we know these politicians and we know these systems are not working. You know, we know that they're corrupt. We know that power corrupts. We know that they don't have the benefit of the people. A big red flag for everyone should have been is like, oh, we're going to put the Native Americans first. When have we ever done that? And and all of the um, elders told me that the uh, genocide, it's a, and it's a genocide agenda. And they said, it's not complete. It's ongoing. It's an ongoing genocide. So, so it's just rough for everybody. And, and, uh, so I think that anyone you meet, you know, regardless of the history and cultures to be treated with respect, because that, that 20,000 year oral history is bonkers. So, you know, the, some of the stuff that I learned from them and, and their way of being and their philosophies were incredibly powerful. And so one of the, one of my favorite spiritual teachings of all time was from David Lone Bear, and he would go into some technology stuff and to alien stuff. And I honestly don't know if it's legit or not legit. It's just way out there. 
but I have seen and experienced some stuff with him that was pretty, like made me very curious, like, holy crap, like maybe I talked about the star people and the star technologies and stuff like that and how we get there. But he just said, you know, do three kind acts a day, go out of your way to do it and don't tell anyone. You know, he's like, that's it. That's a, it's the best teaching I've ever heard. So although he would talk about technologies and, and, and all these really mystical things and disappearing and reappearing and some of these ancient stories and, and things like that and technologies, which existed. And Clifford talked about these technologies as well with David, because we went to, you know, a couple of UFO conferences together and I watched them talk and they seemed to have just a, a deeper understanding. There was no fluff, you know? Everything out there is like very fluffy and very sold. And you got the psychedelic thing and you're, you know, capturing clicks and things like that, which is fine. It's part of the game, but is there substance to it? And they, they were no clicks. You just, well, in our history, it's this, you know, and you're like, holy smoke. So, so that's my big rant. I, the bottom line is, I don't know. <laughs> I would, I would invite people that if, if there's a, a community near, nearby to maybe ask and, and reach out an olive branch and see what's, what's possible to just connect and understand. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm feeling called to do. And that's why I wanted to have this part of the conversation, at least one part of it focused on that. Cause I see, you know, looking through your podcast and listening to it, that that's a big part of who you are and all the wisdom you've gained. And wow, it's powerful, man. It definitely makes me want to go back and find my friend Amos, you know, cause for me, 17 years old, I was just smoking a joint on the park bench. I had a sitting bull t-shirt on just cause I liked the the shirt and I respected the whole thing. You know, it was part of who I was. And sure enough, this guy walks into my life. He sees that I'm smoking a joint. He sees my shirt. He's like, what's up? What's your name? I'm Amos, you know? And from there, he taught me so much. He taught me about how Skull and Bones went and robbed Geronimo's grave from Fort Sill and brought it to New Haven, only a block away from where we met, you know? And that was the reason why he came to New Haven, right? So there's so much that I learned from him, like the disrespect that's happened over the years, you know, to all these sacred places, New Haven, having a green that once was like a sacred burial ground that's now turned into a church. So yeah, I, you know, even here in America, we've had those same treaties broken in all sorts of different ways. And when you talk about, you know, how can we preserve these stories? My first thought is like, well, with podcasting, let's get them, you know, give them podcasting. But then it's like, well, if they're already, you know, being kind of worked on by the government in those ways and maybe not connected themselves, then is that even, you know, going to work? No, I mean, obviously. And then, you know, at the same time, you know, podcasting is so available. Do you want to make something like that available? Because I think certain things are sacred and need to be protected and knowledge is power and it's passed down to the right person, you know, like this podcast, and I'm sure you've experienced this, like people who find this show, they didn't find it by accident. You know, we're not a top rated show. They found this because they're interested in the subject and they want to connect with other thinkers who are thinking about similar things. And I feel the same way when I heard your interview with the Grimerica guys, you know, my family's loosely connected to Canada. So I've always had that kind of connection with the Grimerica show, even though I'm down here. And yeah, I think synchronistically, there's a sort of energy that's happening with podcasting where we're attracting magnetically the right people to create their consciousness and get in tune with the truth. And I have to give it up to you and thank you for, you know, putting your foot in this realm and in that realm and bringing someone like this Yaki, I 
not going to pronounce her name correctly. So I'll let you do that. But, you know, her conversation that Tara and I listened to so powerful, you know, the moment that she had where she realized that the tarp was the way she was going to hydrate herself in this desert, in this seemingly water, you know, free place, no water at all. How am I going to survive? You know? And that's exactly what Amos told me, not that story, but like that experience of going out in the desert when it's coming of age, you know? So listening to that, I was like, wow, this is bringing so much back. And my question, how I'm going to turn this into a question is, have you experienced that same synchronicity through podcasting since getting into this and connecting to so many different people in, in this way? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think for podcasting, for me, it was just wanting to spread a positive message because there's so much nonsense out there. And then also I am very curious, right? So if I can talk to the most brilliant minds and teachers on the planet and pick their brain, what a benefit for me and what a benefit for people to tune in and listen to and learn about their stories and their wisdom and their techniques and their strategies and their their wins and then their losses as well. And so at the very least, it's sending out a signal about who I am and what I stand for and what I want to attract into my life. And I want to attract, you know, people who, you know, have good values, who want, you know, the best for everybody, who are tolerant and kind, who, you know, want to live with love and compassion and uh, cooperation, right? They don't want to dominate. And so you know, at the very least, it 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 sends out that signal and you get the, the like I've had some guests, you know, on there that I'm like, wow, I can't believe this guest is coming on or I get invited to a show and I'm like, holy. And they'll say, yeah, man, like I respect your work. And I was like, whoa, like that's amazing. And for me, that's that's priceless. One I think one of my buddies said the definition of success is having your work by people you were respected by people you respect. And so, you know, the opportunities that I've had because I try to keep it full of integrity, not that, not the most downloads ever, you know, like I'm still very small, relatively plus getting crushed by censorship, you know, everywhere, you know, I've, I've been blessed to have about five, well, like 5.3 million downloads now, which is, which is quite a bit, but you know, my episodes, they'll show like, you know, 1500 or 2000 downloads per show, which is very little, you know, YouTube would be 1000, but if it would be a big show, maybe 10 or 20,000. Right. But they, they, they delete all that. So it's like, man, am I doing this in vain or what am I doing it for? But always the idea was who's working on the solutions, right? Who has the answers? Who has the the systems? Who has something that they can inspire people to to become their own solution, right? To become their own master, to cooperate in a meaningful way that's going to provide value and solutions for other people. So that, you know, that's kind of why I've done it and and have been blessed to meet a lot of really great people because of it. And so anyone, you know, thinking about podcasting, whatever they want to do, just figure out who you are, right? And do it for the service of other people. You know, with this whole awakening thing going on, I think there's, you know, two simple characteristics to know if somebody's legit awake. Number one is they take responsibility for everything in their life. If you don't take responsibility for who you are in every single thing, wherever you are, it, you know, even if you lost your legs because somebody did something to you, well, now you have to take responsibility because that's the situation you're in. Right. If you blame them, like it sucks. It's like, yeah, you're not responsible. They did that, but you have to be like, okay, now what? Right. Otherwise you're going to be a victim and and you can be that way for a period of time, as long as you need to heal. Cause that'd be such a messed up situation. I'm just saying it's, it's putting you in a victim state and you're not going to be able to, you know, provide any kind of solution from there. And then the second thing is, you know, you, you go from what can I get to what can I give? 
right? And so someone asked me like, oh, you know, what is what is speaking out this last, you know, two years given you? I was like, basically nothing. It's given me headaches and pain the butt and getting all my stuff deleted. But I knew it was the right thing to do for me in my heart and my soul and my own consciousness. And, you know, I've had many, <laughs> too many near-death experiences, but one of them, I was in Sedona and I was about to fall off friggin' the stupid bell rock because we went the wrong way, <laughs> which would have sucked. And uh, so I had enough time to process trying to get my foot down and I'm making a long story very short, but I had to process like I had to step down or go up. And either way, it was a leap of faith because if it slipped, I was totally done. Like there was no, you know, I was thinking about if I did slip, I was going to push off the rocks and try to backflip and it'd be about 15 feet so I could pancake and have to smash. And then I would, and then there would be at least one other full flip that I'd have to endure if there's any possibility to land it. So I was, I was in a bad situation, but you know, when it flashed, when my life went, I was like, okay, am I going to die here? I just thought, you know, I guess my work is done. You know, I didn't think, oh, I wish I did this. I wish I, I did that. Like, that's the thought I had. And my partner I was with, I asked her if, if the same experience went through her mind. She said, yeah. And I said, well, what did you think? And she's like, I wish I did this. I, I wish I did that. And the only difference, like, I'm not special at all. I just listened to my inner voice really well. Who am I? What do I want to do? How can I help? That's like just trying, like, I write that down. I, I think about it. I pray about it all the time. Who, how can I help? This is way too big. Life is so confusing. It is a mass mystery. I have no idea what's going on. Show me a way to be useful. Show me a way to be helpful. I try to be honest with myself and self-reflections. I try to correct the things that I'm not great at. You know what I mean? I try not to do any harm to others and, and contrib contribute in a meaningful way. And so if we can just line those things up, and operate each and every day like that, it's, it's a much more powerful and meaningful process because all the material stuff and the, you know, whether I have a hundred thousand followers or, or 10 or a million dollars or whatever, it's just kind of like, it's a result on top of like, a, you know, the core of who you are and you want to build that core and make it gold, you know what I mean? And make it beautiful to, by your own definition, not by someone else's. That's you selling out. That's you compromising your soul. And one of the things I heard on my podcast, I loved, it's funny because, you know, I have all these spiritual people on and sometimes like the not spiritual guest is, says something awesome. So David Weiss is on. He's like one of those famous flat earthers. So he's on there just giving me the gears about flat earth. I was like, you know, <laughs> which was awesome. And uh, so then he goes, I was like, well, what's the meaning of life, David? And he goes, the meaning of life is not to sell your soul. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, and we compromise our soul little by little by little. And some people literally sell their soul and harm others. And to go back to the bar association, what I learned through the law summit was that, you know, they, they, lawyers can be good people in there, but they kind of know what's going on. It's a deceptive system, a deceptive language. The all caps is actually sign language. It's a fictitious language. It's, it's non-existent. So it's all, they're bringing you into the make-believe realm to try to tax you and and basically shear you like a sheep, take your stuff because it's satanic and Luciferian. That's they want to they want to take all your stuff. A good person is not trying to do that. They're trying to help other people. They're not trying to take all their things. So so these people, uh, these attorneys, they're groomed, and the ones that are basically bigger pieces of shit become judges often because the judge knows that you're screwing over a person that has nothing to do with right and wrong. It only has to do with taxing them and taking all their wealth from their business or from this statute or from whatever they're going to do. They're just taking, not every single one, I'm sure there's a few good ones, but they have that understanding and that's why they grew the attorneys because you have to be such a piece of crap to know that you're going to harm somebody 
for no reason by take all their their wealth you know all their all their money all their different things through all these little loopholes to bring it to some sort of system right that's not helping that's causing harm to do that without having that knowing in your guts that that is totally wrong and uh, you're not you're not uh, not only helping people you're harming them in a massive way so that's my rant on that one yeah no i'm <laughs> glad you i'm glad you made that point because yeah it's definitely you know an all-encompassing look what we've just done at the world we're in right now on all levels you know whether it's you know what they want you to put in our bodies or what it is that you know what it is that we're dealing with legally you have something to add just that from listening to the yaki woman she mentioned how we're all in the same boat now so we're we we're all, well, and I think that's the benefit of podcasting is that we are recognizing that we're all in the same boat so we can share our perspectives and really figure out what's going on and, and collectively say, no, we don't want this and like, and figure out, uh, or create a way out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Clifford Mahoudi said the same thing on my podcast months ago. He said, if Joe Biden wins, you're going to know what we went. You're going to go what we went, went through. <laughs> and that's like his closing comment. I was like, oh, dear. You know, and he also said, you know, people in the government were basically the worst possible people you could possibly imagine. He's like, these people are absolutely ho horrible people, you know. And so so we are in the same boat. And that's the whole thing is, is you need to stand up and and do what's right because I had this guy Paul unslaved on my show and he's he kind of went uh, well known because he got pulled over for not having a driver's license or or plates and you can actually do that in the in the United States and if you're in the states check out Christopher Gronsky destinationfreedom.org become a state national gets you out of their uh, jurisdiction that's a very very good way to start and there's a lot of other stuff but if you're in the states you're so f far ahead than anyone else like in Canada and you you guys have the best system so far common law is on the books you have more rights become a state national learn about the law it's a do not pass go do not collect 200 this is how they enslave us so the more of us that know that we can hold them accountable and push back because we forgot our rights we forgot how to hold these people accountable which we used to do you know back in the day if someone was being dishonest in your courtrooms or, or in your political sphere you could challenge them to a duel and it seems like barbaric, but right now it's like, bring it back because a coward, yeah. a coward will never do that. Right. An honorable man will risk his life or woman will risk their lives to do the right thing. Right. right? Cowards will not do that. Right. So they want to take, they want what all this cowardice, you know, to be operating. So I, I can't remember what I was talking about there. I got no, I, I love <laughs> that point you've made. Cause I think you're absolutely right. And they kind of coach that to you when they teach about American history, like, Oh, isn't it great that we don't allow people to duel anymore? That's crazy. But the point you're making is like, no, if these people are, you know, dealing with life or death, that's the nature of their job. In a lot of cases, the laws that they make have, you know, crazy impact on everyone's lives. They should be able to you know, take their life into their hands in that way to defend the choices they've made, especially when it affects people so deeply. I think, yeah, that would, you know, cause some temporary chaos, but it would definitely, you know, be maybe a quicker solution than what we have to do now. I don't want to advocate for violence, but as a martial artist, I think we both have that, you know, sense of like, 
well, obviously we're not going to hurt anybody unless somebody hurts us first or we're, you know, protecting somebody who's being hurt unjustly, right? I mean, that's just something that maybe I take for granted from my martial arts training. But when it comes to the situation we're in right now, I definitely, my thoughts and prayers go out to folks in Canada, your brothers and sisters up there, you know, my grandparents immigrated from Canada. So I've always felt connected and Australia too, you know, those people in Australia are going through a lot right now. So yeah, man, thank you well, so yeah, much. And, and on that point, right, like it, if somebody who does uh, training in martial arts, whatever, you, you never want to fight. You never want to go into combat. You never want to use it. You never want to do any of those things. But these people are harming people en masse. You know, how are they stopped? You know, you're supposed to protect, you know, they're harming children. They're rounding up children and giving these experimental shots in stadiums. You know, they're, they're killing people through all these different pharmaceutical drugs, the drug addictions with the kids, with the education, with everything. You know, if you're going to be a public sphere, you should be held responsible. Now, I'm just saying like that's a primitive way to do it back in the day with the, you know, obviously the dueling thing, but a good, a, a coward is never going to duel an honorable person. The only way that they would ever come back is like, I know you're lying. I know you're causing harm and you have uh, malicious intent. And these pieces of crap all do. So how do we now hold them responsible? Back in the day, you could do it through a variety of different things and we can still use that system today, but they have malicious intent and that's why, you know, they need to be stopped. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like we're guessing here. It's not like it's a plausible thing when you take the time to understand what's going on. You know, all roads lead to corruption and those who are corrupt, they, they could just be removed from power. I'm fine with that. But that kind of barbaric, archaic system, it would, would make them question am I going to do this? Right. Just to know that you're right. They're like, holy crap. You know, we tried to put in this evil system that, but all of a sudden, you know, they started to challenge us. We're going to have to watch ourselves. How do we remove that? Right. Because we don't, we, we don't want this in our way. So yeah, just figuring out systems where th this can't continue. Cause there was a, there's a guy on my show, Alex Sakaris. He's the host of the Skeptical Podcast. It's a massive, massive podcast. He wrote a book called why evil matters, how science and religion flubbed a big one. And just talked about how evil is allowed to prevail because people just cognitive dissonance it. They don't, they don't look at it. They just, they just think someone else can take it. And that's how evil thrives, right? So we basically have these, you know, just imagine lions are going around through the city and they just eat random people here and there. And everyone's like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. Like, you know what I mean? We just don't look at that. Like, we just don't pay attention to that. And that's what's happening now is we have so much evil happening. We're not holding our uh, politicians, our school boards, our public elected officials, our health quote unquote professionals, our doctors. No one is being held accountable to anything. So that's what needs to happen here. These people need to be held accountable. But the good news is the people have always been the power and we have a massive opportunity now to cooperate and build something better and not say, you know what, go have your thing. This is where we're going to go. And anytime you do something evil and corrupt, we're not going to allow you to spin it. You know, you're going to be removed from power, you know, by any means necessary. And we're going to install somebody who has ethics and cool communication and cooperation and and a good, just nature. Cause you look at these people and you study law at all and you know, they're lying to you. You know, they're, they're just lying to you. All of them are, you, you know, you look at the world economic forum and the WHO and all the connections within the political, political sphere. It's, you know, it's just common sense. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I, thanks for breaking that down because I, yeah, 
I think that's exactly where we need to be right now is thinking clearly about what's going on so we can make the right decisions. And, you know, I thank you for putting your show together and putting that message out there, you know, despite possibly being censored, but I wouldn't worry about that. Keep pushing on. I know people are hearing you and Alex Sakaris, friend of mine. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, people just take that for granted, you know, authority and, and so much goes, you know, in between those lines and, you know, with that a little distraction here, we'll probably edit this part out. What is she asking me about? The keys? Why? <laughs> All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show anyways, Matt. So sorry about the interruption. I really, I lost my focus there. My mom doesn't understand what a podcast is. So it's all so, awesome. That's, but, <laughs> but that's hence the name of the show. But I have one last question for you, you know, with your, you know, lifelong interests and pursuits, obviously not the norm, but very admirable. Does your family think you're crazy? Oh, thank goodness. My mom, well, my mom has always been, yeah, well, my dad thinks I've been nuts my whole life for sure. Absolutely. My mom, she said she never understood me, but the last two years she woke up and she's like, oh man, I get it. She's like, you were telling me this stuff in your teenage years. And she's like, I just didn't understand it. I just couldn't hear you. Right. And so thankfully most of my family is, is pretty on point to, for with what's going on, but yeah. <laughs> That's and, good you know, to hear yeah, friends and family, you know, I, I was telling my friends about this in high school, but they, they just, they can't wake up, you know, they can't hear it. They, they, it's, it just shatters your whole reality. Everything you think you let one of these things in, it just shatters their whole reality. You have to think about everything from the ground up. And it's a very, very hard thing to do, especially when you have the, the pinnacle of brainwash and propaganda from all angles. So, you know, they know this stuff. It's not like they just figured it out. They've been doing this for generations and generations. Look at the Century Self documentary, right? And them using it in the early 1900s, you know, so they've been mastering that. Now they have TV, media, so they have a whole arsenal to brainwash you knowing exactly how to do it and they're using everything they can. So have some compassion, but don't take any crap. <laughs> yeah. I like it too. I think this has been really exactly what I expected. Matt, you're awesome, man. I love your show. I love talking to you. Give the people exactly what they need to know to find you and stay up to date. Obviously master mind, body, and spirit, right? Is the name of the show. And and mattbelair.com is the place where people can go. But tell them more. What else you got going on these days? Yeah, well, first of all, I appreciate you having me on the show. You know, it's, it's always nice to talk to a fellow podcaster, you know, putting out the good vibes and, and spreading the word. So if they want to find me, go, yeah, go to my website, sign up for the email list for sure, because I'm getting censored everywhere. I post a ton of content on Telegram because I get deleted everywhere else. So Telegram, they're still letting out information. So that's t.me forward slash Matt Baylor. I am on Instagram, but they already deleted one. They deleted my YouTube and then they gave me back and then they gave me strikes immediately. So I'm going to get deleted again, which makes no sense. They deleted my Patreon, right? So people can't even support that way. So you can if you want to become a member. So it just, it's just mayhem right now, but it's a part of it, right? And, and this is the process. This is how we mold who we are, you know, as a, as a person is making these difficult choices that are the right thing to do, even though they're uncomfortable. And that's how we keep our soul intact. And oh yeah, that's what I was going to say when I was talking about Paul Unslaved. It was such a great quote. He said, it's, it's more important who you are when you die than how you die. 
You know, so if you keep compromising these things that, that you know are wrong and you don't stand up, there's going to be nothing left of you but a shell. You know, we're not sure how we die or when we die. So have a bit of courage, a little bit of backbone, a little bit of faith, because we're none of us are getting out of here alive. But who we are when we leave could be a very different story. So just thank you for the opportunity to speak and share. And thank you for uh, what you're doing to do what you can to just promote positivity and cooperation and solutions, you know, to the best of your ability, because that's all we really can do. Thank you, Matt. Likewise to you, man. Obviously, big ups to you, Matt. Thank you for listening, folks. Please go and support Matt Belair wherever you can. And uh, with that, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And thank you to Matt Belair for joining us today. You can follow up with Matt at mattbelair.com or zenathlete.com. Also check out his podcast, Master Mind, Body, and Spirit. And thanks again to Matt for sharing his wisdom, his knowledge, and his experiences his friend Tyrone and that story really blew me away. A hundred days of meditating and eventually having an out-of-body experience. Shout out to Seb Bland, past guest talking about out-of-body experiences. Stay tuned, folks. We got a lot of big things coming on the Patreon. I'm about to be doing a podcast with Michael Wan. And not just any podcast, but a new podcast where I am his co-host. Don't worry, I'll still be doing the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'll still be doing the synchromistic exploration of the ever-expanding now and everything else that we do here to keep us going. And if you love the podcast, if you love all the things I'm doing over here, show us some love. Help me keep this thing going. Because it doesn't happen by accident, and I definitely don't have a trust fund or any bullshit like that to keep this thing going. I'm just doing it with hard work. If you want to keep this show going, help me out. Patreon.com slash MFTIC. You can also go to MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com and you can send a one-time donation. But thank you so much. If you're listening this long, I know you love the show. So show us some love back. We got a lot of cool stuff on the Patreon. I release the episodes early, or at least I'm trying to do that every time now. Uh, but I also release all the video content there, and I don't edit at all. So if you want to see all the little mistakes and all that, definitely check that out because there were some things that I edited out of the last episode. Let's just say that. But either way, great times on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Shout out to Tara and all the work she's doing behind the scenes. Love you, girl. And uh, that's it for today. Enjoy the moment wherever you are. Expand your reality. Expand your life manifest.